I thought irrevocable was pronounced irrevocable for like 11 years of my life. It's not? Not as good of a word, huh? Welcome to A Century in Cinema. I'm Arthur. And I'm Andrew. And this is a podcast where we discuss a classic film from every year. Our film this year is from 1953, Tokyo Story, from director Yasujiro Ozu. And check our show notes. You can find where to stream Tokyo Story. I watched it on the Criterion channel. I know it's also available on HBO Max right now. A lovely little film. Highly recommend it. But we'll get into that. Let's talk about the year 1953. What's going on this year? Korean War ends when President Eisenhower threatens to use nuclear weapons in China. South Korea is returned to the UN, and a tense stalemate forms. The USSR tests their own hydrogen bomb this year, and Joseph Stalin dies. Not in the bomb blast, just in a separate event. There you go. And for context... Stalin was the dictator of the Soviet Union going all the way back to 1927, around the time we watched Battleship Potemkin almost 30 years ago. Nikita Khrushchev becomes the next leader of the Soviet Union, denounces Stalin's totalitarian policies, and promises an era of reform. Queen Elizabeth II is also crowned in England, and Iran is nationalized. So that's what's going on around the globe. In science and technology, there's more development on the polio vaccine. I think I mentioned that last week. The double helix structure of DNA is discovered this year, and the first commercial color TVs go on sale in the U.S. for $1,175. Um, so, okay, so I want to catch us up really quickly on Japan because this film that we're watching this week seems like it's so tied to what's going on in Japan. The Allied occupation ended just last year in 1952. Westernization because of U.S. troops in the country means you see a lot of American music and movies trickling into the Japanese culture. And pretty soon, Japan will export more of their own culture to the rest of the world. But it will take a moment. Like with this movie. Right. Are we talking about movies now? Uh, we should mention what else came out this year. This is the year Titanic came out, but not the one that you guys know about. Starring Barbara Stanwyck and Clifton Webb. <laughs> I've never seen that movie. It's not even a movie that I would like recommend. I just wanted to make that joke so bad. Um, William Wyler kicks off Audrey Hepburn's career with a huge bang with Roman Holiday, a ginormous success, and she pretty much receives immediate fame in her first film role. Ray Harryhausen's The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms comes out this year, a classic 1950s monster movie. Harryhausen was the protege to Willis O'Brien, the man behind King Kong. Disney releases Peter Pan this year. I see that. It's been years since I've seen Peter Pan. Oh, man, I revisited that one. <laughs> Problematic? Yeah, you know I'm not even one to be like, ah, but like, man, there's just this entire song about the Native Americans in it called What Makes the Red Man Red, and I was sitting there just like holding my face with one hand like, how on earth like did this, did this pass? Like, <laughs> um, this year, Mitsuguchi, who we will be discussing more in depth next week, 
releases his haunting post-grave romance, Ugetsu, a really fantastic film that I recommend very highly. And then, of course, uh, the film that I recommended to you a while back when we did Le Corbeau, Clouseau's Wages of Fear is released this year. It's so good. An epic. It is tense, horrifying, romantic, adventurous, exciting. I will run out of adjectives. (laughs) It is one of the best film experiences you can ever have. Oh, and Kubrick releases his first feature it's independently financed. It's called Fear and Desire. And dear listeners, you should never watch it. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then I also see War of the Worlds here. I do love that movie. Super fun color sci-fi film from this era. Uh, in the queer cinema canon, I have to give a shout out to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the all-time great Howard Hawks musical starring Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe in which Jane Russell has an entire musical number about how she can't garner a man's attention while going through a swimming team of men who are all too busy looking at each other's chiseled bodies to notice her. It is one of the great moments of gay cinema. All right. We have a whole other film we got to discuss. Okay. Yeah. I always just like, yeah, you know. Do you want me to go? It is so your turn for the plot. <laughs> I was thinking about that <laughs> yesterday. I was like, it's his turn. It is so his turn. <laughs> All right. I knew it was my turn. I, I wrote it out. I'm ready. I love that. Tokyo Story is about an aging Japanese couple who travel across the country to Tokyo to visit their adult children who are busy making careers for themselves. So busy, in fact, that they don't have much time to entertain their parents. But there's a daughter-in-law, Noriko, who does take the time to spend with the visiting couple. She was married to their son, who died in the war. The parents kind of come to terms with the realization that their children are drifting away from them. And up until then, it's a pretty meandering film. They visit sites around Tokyo. They spend time... Uh, with the stepdaughter, et cetera, et cetera. They decide to return home, but the mother suffers a stroke and slips into a coma. The children return to see her off in some quiet, really devastating scenes. They cry, you cry, and life goes on. What do you think? Is that Tokyo Story? Yeah, life is disappointing, isn't it? (laughs) A line from the film. This was a really uh, enchanting and lovely experience for me to watch this is a movie that i actually have totally lied about seeing to people before it doesn't come from a complete place of dishonesty i've seen so many clips and scenes from this movie before i kid you not as recently as a month and a half ago i came home and my roommate noah was watching this and i just sat down and watched the last 40 minutes with him so i had just very recently watched just the ending of this movie So I was very familiar with it, but I had never sat down and just watched it from beginning to end. And yeah, it was really nice. I kid you not, there was not a single scene that I had not seen before. (laughs) But um, (laughs) it was that almost made it more interesting to be able to connect it in that way. Um, And yeah, I mean, even when I just watched the ending with Noah a few weeks ago, I started crying. And yeah, I cried really hard. This this viewing as well, I just think it's a very moving movie. And it's not like cheap sentimentality. It's It really makes you think about the fact that, you know, 
your parents aren't going to be around for forever. And yeah, it just roused up some very genuine, real memories and emotions in me. And um, like I said, there's no other way to say it. I was fully enchanted. All of that is 100% true. I'd echo all of it. I also want to sing praise for director Ozu because when you watch a film from this guy, you know you're watching a film from him. Mm. Not only just because of the low angles that everyone talks about and are always immediately apparent, but the fact that the films feel so down to earth, like in a real way. Yes. There's never any big drama, you know, there's never any like huge arguments or outbursts or, you know, anything like that at all is just people kind of dealing with some dilemmas in their lives and you just watch them kind of figure it out together in the hands of someone who didn't know what they were doing. This could be incredibly boring, but it's enchanting. Yeah, I would completely agree with that because this is sort of a huge part of his style of writing and movie making is he will tell you about scenes that happen, but you don't get to see them. They happen off screen and people will talk about them later. And, you know, there is this rule, show, don't tell in filmmaking. But he compels you to be told because if he did show you, the film could come too close to something resembling cheap sentimentality or melodrama. And he does not want that in his movies. And it never feels like you're being cheated. Yeah, you're just sort of lulled into these moments of people just sitting around and reflecting and it sort of makes you start to get into a certain state of reflection as well. And I think that's kind of miraculous achievement for a movie to be able to reach inside of you like that. So have you seen any other Ozu films? The only other Ozu I've seen is um, Good Morning. Yeah, rewatch that. I love it. Yeah, and I, I think that's a very enchanting movie. Um, I need to watch more of him. Honestly, this is a huge blind spot for me. I'm a huge fan of Mitsuguchi, who I would argue makes much slower paced films than Ozu does, and a huge fan of Kurosawa, and they're sort of considered the holy trinity of early Japanese film directors because they were all auteurs in different ways, and they all shared similar sentiments when it came to the treatment of physical film stock. All three of them were very insistent on having rehearsals and only shooting a scene once knowing that they all do that and seeing what they all are able to achieve with it is really incredible i'm already like this is such a just the way we're even talking it's in such reverence and stuff i don't know it's really nice what if i had hated this film oh that would have really made me sad i wouldn't have known how to approach it <laughs> i wouldn't have i would just be like i'm sorry like i would have. it wouldn't have been like in the future i would have been like okay well for tonight's episode, we're going to pop in Tokyo Story and I'm just going to talk while Arthur watches it again. <laughs> and <laughs> until he likes it. Um, until he grows a heart. And, you know, I I can't say this film is for everybody. I do know that I have acquired a taste for slower paced meditative films, but I still... I thought this movie zipped by, if I'm being completely honest. And again, that might have come from my familiarity with a lot of the scenes. But it, for me, yeah. It it was slow. I, I did break it up into two sittings. That's not any uh, critique on the film. 
how would you say it feels like to watch a Ozu film? What does it feel like? Mm. It feels like you are... It feels as if you are washing the dishes while people behind you are talking about things that happened in their day. <laughs> and you were listening in. That's how I would describe it. That's the genuine feeling I have. The film isn't trying to consume you or take over your thoughts. The film is sort of wanting to live with your thoughts. I was going to say this... Watching an Ozu film, to me, feels like sitting outside on a perfect summer day and listening in on people's conversations as they walk by. Yeah, that's good. Especially Good Morning. I, I, I think I might also say that because so many of his films and their titles are things like Late Spring or An Autumn Afternoon, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he definitely isn't trying to hide the lackadaisical nature of his films. Tokyo Story is probably the grandest title in his oeuvre. Early summer. You can see how a lot of these films might start to blend together if you watch them one right after the other, especially because his style is always so consistent. Mm -hmm. He's often using many of the same actors, and he even names a lot of the people in his scripts the same names. Um, Ozu, very interesting figure. His grave, all that's on it is the Japanese character for nothing. That's the only marker on the grave. There's no name or anything or years. And it's considered a tradition to buy a bottle of sake and put it on his tombstone. And people still do that today. I've always wanted to do that myself. <laughs> the man loves sake. He had kind of a tough life he had a rough relationship with his parents he didn't enjoy school he took a long time to sort of find himself he was single his entire life a lot of people say that he was most likely gay he did get in trouble when he was in school at a young age for sending another boy his age a letter of love and affection and from that point forward, there's not really much known about his romantic his romantic life. That's always interesting to me. Mm. What I think is interesting is in Tokyo Story, I think that his stand-in is supposed to be Noriko, Setsuko Hara's character. She's been in this marriage, and now she doesn't want to marry again. And no one will believe her when she says that she's content being without a husband, I can't help but sort of interpret it a little bit as like a queer coding thing going on within that character. Hmm. She's clearly the kindest and most nurturing person when it comes to the relationship with the parents, even though she's not related by blood. And they don't even really understand it. <laughs> yeah. Like, why are you doing this? Why are you giving us these things? But also thinking in terms of her as a stand-in for Ozu, I know that he lived with his mother and cared for her yes. through most of his life. After being drafted into the war, when he came back, he moved in with his mother. And that was, yeah, pretty sure he spent the rest of her life there and then lived in that house. His grave is next to her. Do we even want to talk about his style or is it so obvious? 
No, we can totally talk about his style. I mean, we have people who listen who don't get a chance to watch these movies or just like listening to us talk. That's true. All of his shots, no matter what film you're watching, you can tell you're watching an Ozu film, like I said. Famously, he put his camera very low to the ground. His sets actually had to be built on stilts a lot of the time Mm -hmm. so that his camera could always stay about three feet above the ground, approximately where your eyes would be if you were sitting on a tatami mat. And I've heard people say that this was a stylistic choice, but it could also just be a practical choice. Most of the action does take place on the floor with and around people who are sitting on tatami mats, so it just makes sense. But nonetheless, the effect is that you're just sitting and chilling and listening in on these people's conversations. And there's a lot of really, really clean angles, a lot of frames within frames. In these old Japanese houses, he takes advantage of doorways and hallways to to really show off the architecture and let his characters move around in interesting ways. And then all of his dialogue shots, you can always feel a little uneasy when you start out watching them because the characters look like they're talking directly into the camera, but their eyes are always a little bit off, just a little bit. Um, But it's a very signature look, those dialogue scenes. And not to mention his meticulous mise-en-scene. Every single set is, I mean, it's just... It's just perfection. He has angled every photograph the right way. He has moved every single object into a place where it will fit into a comfortable space of the angle so that it never feels crowded, but it always feels lived in. The camera never moves. He does not move his camera. This movie was interesting because of the bus sequence bringing in movement into the image at a point where we're supposed to feel a little sort of sort of rushed because at that point the children are very frustrated and are like oh just send them off to the spa haven't they always wanted to go to the spa have have them hang out with noriko and they take them on the tourist bus mm-hmm. and so at that point we're supposed to sort of feel like we're being pushed and um a little unwanted and so the way he the way he translates that urgency being forced upon people is the image is moving, but it's only in the background. The camera is still completely still. Okay. I was going to challenge you because the camera actually does move in this film. Did you notice it? No, obviously not. It's so subtle. I didn't notice it the first time I watched it. It was only when the commentary literally pointed it out to me. I was like, oh my gosh. It's when the parents are kind of wandering around Tokyo. It's almost like they're homeless. They've been pushed out of the house and they're (laughs) trying to kind of come up with things to do. And yeah, the camera follows them across this road as they look over a balcony. Very, very subtle. Oh, I love that. I also just completely believe that there is significance to it because like people who have worked on Ozu films have said that like he would look at the image through the viewfinder and then would go over and move stuff a centimeter in and stuff. Like he was just so meticulous with how everything looked. So there's no way it happened on accident or anything. Yeah. But I've also, I I don't know. I feel like sometimes on film sets, sometimes, especially when you're out on location, you're just rushing to get something real quick and you're just, okay, this is, let's get this. Arthur out here destroying auteur theory (laughs) one shot at a time. Um, I did look up really quick to see production designer on this film versus production designers on his other films. 
I just wanted to see if he worked with the same person. And it looks like he switches around between production designers, art directors. So when you are watching an Ozu film, the look, the mise-en-scene, the sets, and that consistent look, that is all because of him. So there is merit to that old auteur theory. Yeah. How are you ready to move on to the next topic? Yes, we could keep talking, but we shouldn't. I was going to ask you, how does this film subtly demonstrate the changing Japanese culture post-war? <laughs> I, think this is a, I think this is a good spot to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot of things that I didn't even notice until I was watching it the second time with the commentary, and they pointed out here and there. I feel like the theme of this film is all about how our lives move on, the world changes, and it's not presented in a bad way or anything like that. It just is what it is. Your parents will pass away. You will drift away from your family. You will form your own life. And it's interesting that that theme interweaves with a lot of scenes that demonstrate the changing Japanese culture at this time, post-war, post-occupation. You have the grandchild learning English, struggling to pronounce English words, right? Right. When they go on that bus tour, they're actually looking at new buildings, new architecture around Tokyo that would not have been there before the war. I definitely thought that Noriko's whole perspective on marriage and wanting to be independent felt like a certain change in culture that they don't understand. As well as, of course, when they're at the bathhouse and they feel like they're too old for the crowd there. Oh, yeah, the band. That's right. I can relate. Trying to get some sleep with people banging. <laughs> Used to live in an apartment building. Yeah, I definitely think that there is an interpretation of the film that's not hard to find at all of the parents representing old Japan and the children representing post-war Japan. And they're having to come to terms with that and then we have to come to terms with the fact that the past eventually does completely die away and all that's left is our memories and records of it but i understand it took a while for this film to get released in the west or to find a western audience i watched this featurette with all these directors who've been inspired by ozu Including Vim Vendors, Lindsay Anderson, a bunch of Paul Schrader, a bunch of people. And all of them talked about how Kurosawa films in the 50s were already being uh, sort of seen as exports and were getting releases and stuff. You know, we've kind of already mentioned that a little bit in this podcast. But Ozu films were never seen as anything commercially viable, so they weren't really released. And it kind of wasn't until after his last film, An Autumn Afternoon, in the 60s, that retrospectives started being screened in other countries. And the three films that people talk about the most are An Autumn Afternoon, Floating Weeds, and Tokyo Story. I think those three were the ones that they were kind of sending out with the retrospective. And so many people watch them and, you know were very moved by them and had never seen movies like that before. So he's also kind of a tragic figure and that he didn't really get to live to see the success and potential impact he would have on the world. Uh, he died on his 60th birthday, December 12th. He had throat cancer. 
So, Andrew, you were the one to find a review from this week. Yes. In that retrospective, I watched uh, Lindsay Anderson mention seeing this film in, I believe it was 57, at a British theater. It was the first time any Ozu film had been released in Britain. And he was so moved by it that he wrote on it that evening. Um, I have just included an excerpt from his full essay, which is called Two Inches Off the Ground. Um, did you get a chance to read this? Okay, yeah, I love that he loves this film. So, mm -hmm. And I like how he words it here. And I'll kind of shorten this, but... For with all its understanding and compassion, Tokyo Story is not a simple humanistic protest against the transience of life and the bitterness of experience, but rather wisdom and acceptance. And I, I love that, yeah, because a lot of the characters in the film say that life is disappointing, but the mood of the film, what I think it wants to instill in its audience is this acceptance for life as it passes by. And in that, there is wisdom to be had. Lindsay Anderson directed a terrific film called If Ellipses, um, and the ellipses in the title is sort of a homage to Ozu, who always who used ellipses in his titles frequently and also referred to his skipping of scenes and skipping of sequences and then coming back to people discussing them briefly as ellipses. That's how he referred to them. Those Ozu films with ellipses in the titles include I Graduated But, I Flunked But, and I Was Born But. All ending with dot, dot, dot. Do you know that that is a play on a Japanese saying that sort of emerged around the Great Depression? No, I did not know this. Tell me more. Yeah, there was a saying going around. I graduated, but I don't have any work. Or I graduated, but I don't have any money. Basically, people saying that, yeah, I succeeded. I did something really cool, but... Society sucks right now. I'm not doing so well. So this is sort of the equivalent of using like slang, relatable slang in a film title. I love that. Again, all his titles just blending together. Oh, yeah. I have seen I Was Born But, and it's a silent film. He was one of the last Japanese filmmakers to continue to make silent films, even when talkies were really really popular um so many of his super early films are lost which is sad but mm -hmm. i didn't put this in our notes but i i did me i did want to talk about it we would be remiss to not at least a little bit discuss the careers of shishu ryu and setsuko hara who both do phenomenal work in this film shishu ryu plays the father slash husband setsuko hara plays noriko Everyone in the main cast of this film was sort of part of like an acting troupe that Ozu had gathered together and would use in films frequently. But these two, specifically Shishu Ryu, were his two most often collaborators. Shishu Ryu had been working with him and starring in films of his since I had flunked, but... Hmm. Um, <laughs> Which doesn't sound right when you say it like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but when you're looking at it, when you're looking at it, uh, it makes more sense. And another little tidbit that I love, Shishu Ryu uh, is the main character in Kurosawa's post-war meditation on depression. 
I Live in Fear, which is a very dark, very good film, highly recommended. And Setsuko Hara, Kurosawa only ever directed one film with a female protagonist, unless you count The Most Beautiful, which is his propaganda film about a group of women who are working together, but none of them are protagonists and they're not even really named. But he only directed one film with a female protagonist called No Regrets for Our Youth, and she is played by Setsuko Hara, and it's a phenomenal performance. I kind of love that they both have these special moments with Kurosawa at the same time, and they're giving such different, varied performances. Setsuko Hara also plays the villain in Kurosawa's adaptation of The Idiot, and it is an amazing performance. As much as he is disappointed with the production company chopping up that movie, it is worth watching just for her performance, because she she kicks it off being sort of a sweet and tender woman like she's Setsuko Hara and as she slowly turns against him and starts to work out of her own motivations it's just so captivating to watch you're like wow I would have never thought casting her as a villain but when you give her this super sweet and innocent you know outlook from the beginning it makes you just hate her even more by the end of the movie okay so Sight and Sound Poll, 2012. Critics named this third greatest film of all time. The directors named it the greatest film of all time. You have Japanese critics in really popular film magazines ranking it the number one film ever made. Greatest Japanese film. So, Andrew, when you start throwing around those kinds of terms, greatest film of all time, do you think this is one of the greatest films of all time? Well, you know how I am about those kinds of terms. Um, although I can certainly occasionally get excited and say that about movies. I'll say it about so many movies that doesn't mean anything anymore. I'll be like, that's one of the greatest <laughs> films of all time. I do genuinely mean it every time I say it. But, you know, I think it's unfair to put that sort of label on any movie. Of, not because it isn't deserving, but because... I wouldn't want someone to go into this and think, oh, it's it's it literally got to be better than any other movie I've ever seen. But I think the reason why it carries so much resonance with so many people is because it feels like such a specific viewpoint and a very specific story. But the moral and message of it feels so universal that the pain and the sadness contained from the specific perspective being thrown into the film is sort of shared by anyone who watches it. You know, thinking about when I cried during the movie, I didn't even really cry during specific scenes. I was welling up and then it was when that musical cue hit at the very end with the end over it. There isn't a lot of scoring in the film. But when that scoring that had played over the opening credits played again to its final chord, I don't know what it was, but just sort of the whole package just sort of came down on me at once. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I am I'm crying. And (laughs) and it just sort of gripped me. I think a lot of people feel that way where they have a very emotional experience with this film, but they don't feel like it manipulated them and they don't feel like it cheated in any way. It just feels like 
It's forcing them to sort of deal with their real human emotions. For me, it was when the son just has a really silent moment. He walks out and we only see him from behind as he just kind of contemplates this new reality he's living in. And he just kind of plays with the bird that he has in the cage there. Just like this really strange moment, this little peek into a guy who's been really cold and sort of distant for the whole movie. That that was the part that for some reason got me. I don't know. I do think I I do think that there's also a an under motivation that I myself have been guilty of on this very podcast that there's a fear that because of this film's understated nature and its um slow pacing that there's a possibility it will be lost to time. And so I can see how, you know, especially from a director's perspective, they're like, I'm putting this at number one, not because it is the greatest film of all time, but just because if it makes the list as the number one greatest film of all time, it's sort of securing a legacy and making sure it doesn't die. That's and I have nothing to back that up. That's just my personal perspective. I can see I that. Do that all the time. As <laughs> lo- as our loyal listeners will attest to. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you. I loved watching this. I'm really glad I finally got to it. Yeah. I might have even been putting it off because of that status, you know? Greatest film of all time. So many directors named this as one of the best films ever, et cetera, et cetera. You know, when a bunch of people recommend you something, you're like, eh. Mm-hmm. I do know that. I hate it. I hate that part of myself for some reason, because every time I actually get around to watching it, I'm like, oh, why did I put that off? I loved that. Yeah. So that's how I feel now. But I'm really glad I got to watch it and discuss it for this podcast. That's great. Yeah, it's totally human nature. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah, if a million people recommend you the same thing, you're like, I got it. But then you watch it and you're like, okay, you were you were all right. <laughs> what are we watching next week, Andrew? Well, I teased his name a lot throughout this episode. Yes. Next week we will be watching Sancho the Bailiff by Kenji Mitsuguchi. Um and you can find where to stream that film in our show notes, as always. Um, this is another really fun movie, right? Something that is just kind of light, a little pick me up after this. <laughs> we are just taking a mo- we are just taking a moment to get into some really dark, depressing Japanese cinema. <laughs> um, but I, I I was genuinely very excited about getting to talk about these two directors with you because I know how much you love Kurosawa, and I've I've read books and seen documentaries about film history and stuff and. These three are sort of a triangle, so I really wanted to sort of help, you know, coax you into the other two people's filmographies, only to discover on this podcast you've seen more Ozu than I have. But you knew more about Ozu in general than I did. You know, um, gay people, we just know each other. That's how it is. So that was all it was. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm offended, Andrew, that you didn't mention the fourth Japanese filmmaker, maybe the greatest Japanese filmmaker. You're going to get to talk about him next week. All right. <laughs> well, should we leave it as a tease for the, for the audience? It's like anyone who knows you knows what what you're talking about because it's 1954. But yeah, they should. We'll mention it. I was being serious about us, like 
because, you know, we both have like these pinnacle movies. So I think for 54, you should really get a chance to talk about that. And 68, I should really get a chance to talk about, you know, the film that sort of changed my life. I love so, it. So yeah, I think I think we should do it. I even brought up the beast from 20,000 Fathoms to set it all up. Mm-hmm.